Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 51 of the Independent Intel Podcast. I'm your regular host, Kim Bumati, back with my guy, the Blue Buds. Uh, we're here to talk about the NFL Draft Recap. The draft weekend has just really ended a few days ago, and there's a ton of things to talk about from HBCU prospects that got picked up, why Marquise Bell wasn't drafted, and who had the best and worst drafts overall. But before we dive into it, I want to give a congratulations to my guy, Blue. He was on Twitter, you know, kind of televising the draft full swing when it came to talking about who got drafted FCS-wise, the HBCU players that got drafted, the HBCU guys that got signed during undrafted free agency. So talk about how it was to do that really for the first time on your platform, covering the nuances of who got selected and who got picked up during the draft cycle. Yeah, you know, this was my first year doing it on Twitter because usually the first two three years to my show i did a live stream like the like you can go look at our youtube channel i mean we did a six seven hour live stream the past two drafts i mean just straight through talking fbs fcs like it didn't matter and this year i had some stuff come up where i wasn't able to live stream so i was like you know how can i move this to my platform and still you know let the people who support the show know who got drafted name some facts about them and everything like that so i figured i'd move it to twitter man it's real easy to you know tweet it out and you know, if people had questions, could answer them there. So we live tweeted, we live tweeted the entire first round. And then after that, man, we live tweeted all the FCS HBCU selections that were made, including Joshua Williams from Fayetteville State. And, you know, after the draft, man, I was, I, I'm telling you, at, like that Saturday night, man, I, I remember going to bed. I was just exhausted because, I mean, every single FCS player that signed a mini camp invite as an undrafted free agent, man, I tried to get it out there to people as soon as I could. You know, a few people reached out to me and let me know what was going on in terms of FCS prospects. I met some scouts at the Legacy Bowl, uh, scouts and agents where I was texting them after the draft trying to figure out what's going on with certain prospects, man. So I definitely appreciate the recognition, man. And um, I'm looking forward to, you know, next year doing the live stream along with the live man bring back the live stream maybe we'll you know I've, I've been talking to some of the hbcu platforms doing like a a big joint hbcu youtube space throughout the draft you know have commercial breaks and do it big kind of like me and all script did this year with national signing day yeah you really really came handy when it came to enlisting who signed where for the undrafted free agency cycle um you're kind of the first guy i saw tweet out that felix harper signed a free agency contract with the Cleveland Browns. How was it um, releasing those factoids on those individuals? Because we're going to talk about it on the segment. Four HBCU prospects got drafted, but countless others got an opportunity to sign free agency deals and go to rookie minicamp. How dope was it to live tweet that out? Man, it was cool because, you know, I got to talk to a lot of these guys. You know, we're approaching almost 100 player interviews on our channel. And a lot of these guys that I even I haven't interviewed, I got to meet in person and talk to at certain games I've been to, events I've been at. And, you know, as much as, you know, we're still media and, you know, there's got to be like a sense of space between us and the players so we can keep our you know, keep our objectivity and not become too blinded by our relationship with the players. It was still awesome because, I mean, I feel like regardless of the media, anytime you cover a player, you're rooting for that player to eventually reach their ultimate goal, which is the NFL. And to see some of the guys who, for me, even being close to them, I didn't see them necessarily getting a great shot because you look at some player sizes, you look at their production, you look at injury history. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into the draft process, which I'm sure we're going to break down in just a little bit. But 
to see those players get that shot, to see Felix Harper's relationship with Deshaun Watson working out in the offseason with him lead to an opportunity to be one of the first, I believe I was watching some tweets, depending on what they do with Mayfield, the Browns could have one of the only, you know, all African-American QB rooms in the NFL. That's a huge deal. And for Felix Harper to potentially be a part of that is big. And then for me, FCS-wise, it was dope to see Eric Berrier, Cole Kelly, some of these guys get their shots because, uh, you know, really and truly Eric Berrier wasn't going to get drafted. And I thought that was shocking to say the least and to see him at least get a shot to the Broncos where he reminds me a lot of a Russell Wilson type player where he can be mobile and make plays outside the pocket it a lot of these guys found great landing spots and for me it was also bringing the news to people who because uh as you know being working for pro football focus and stuff after the draft is probably more chaotic than leading up to the draft or in the draft because and what a lot of people don't know is it's not just a, whoever contacts the player first gets that guy. It becomes free agency after the draft where, yes, you might say, why did it take so long for this player to sign like an Akil Glass? Well, he could have had eight, nine offers, and he needs to pick which one is better for him. So it was really dope for me to be able to deliver that info. I know Light on Sports and a few other guys were out there grinding as well, but I think the HBCU media space and just the FCS media space in general needs more people like us to bring the information. Because if you look back a few years ago, there was nobody delivering that information to that space on social media. So for us to be one of the first people to bring it as quickly as we could, as accurately as we could, man, it was actually, it was really fun. And I'm looking forward to hopefully more people, you know, stepping into that space come next draft cycle when we should have a lot more HBCU prospects potentially drafted. You know, and a lot of the momentum hopefully carries over to the 2023 NFL draft. Yeah, it was dope to see um, you light on sports, really these new media conglomerates kind of come up and advertise undrafted free agent prospects and the FCS get signed on because you don't really see a lot of that national wide coverage on NFL media platforms. So to see that when I made my PF of HBCU prospects top 10, to see all those top 10 guys be on NFL teams or at least have an opportunity to be on an NFL team was dope in itself. And to kind of see that into fruition, that's something I could say two to three years ago, we probably wouldn't be able to see in such um, normalcy at all. Now we're going to dive into the HBCU draft picks and their fits. So there were 20 FCS prospects selected in the 2022 NFL draft. Four of them were HBCU prospects. The past two years, just one HBCU talent was drafted. And just last season, zero were selected overall. And blue, we're going to start with the two fourth round secondary selections made by the two most recent Super Bowl champions in the Kansas City Chiefs and the Los Angeles Rams. Let's start with Kansas City. Had one of their better drafts of the weekend. They selected a handful of guys at skill positions that add depth to their defense. Five of their first six draft selections were on the defensive side, including the drafting of Joshua Williams from Fayetteville State. He was a guy blew throughout the pre-draft process. I heard at PFF and really heard off the job airwaves that he was going to be the HBCU player picked first. A lot of guys like this his measurables, like his speed. They like his ability to grow and evolve into one of the premier zone corners. Um, were you not surprised that he got selected so early? And how do you feel he'll fit within the Kansas City secondary that's truly rebuilding on the fly to try to match it with the likes of Cincinnati moving forward? Um, you know, for me, I'm not, I'm not necessarily surprised. I feel like 
when I looked at, you know, at first I was a bit skeptical because, you know, for me covering Power 5, Group of 5, FCS, I don't have a lot of time to look at D2 as much as I should. I, did, I just don't have that capacity right now as a one-man unit. But for me, I got to see him up close at the Senior Bowl. And that was really my first exposure to Joshua Williams. And he's shined, man. I mean, he was out there balling with, with the best corners in the country, Kobe Bryant and, and some of the other guys that were there against some of the best wide receivers. You look at Christian Watson and some of the other guys who got to come down to Mobile and show off their talents. He hung with the best of them. He's just an athlete, man. He When he was out there, he it didn't stick out. If you would have taken the Fayetteville helmet off or Fayetteville State helmet off and put on any other helmet, he would have fit in. He would have been, you would have, he wouldn't have stuck out. And so for me, it's not surprising. The senior bowl, if you get invited to the senior bowl, you're probably getting drafted. I believe in the past three years, I saw Jim Nagy tweet out, I think 83% of the players who go to the senior bowl get drafted and damn near a hundred of them get signed. I mean, that's, that's outstanding for that, for that bowl game. And so shout out to them for their, you know, scouting community that they use to select the players, but he's long. He's athletic. I think his ball skills are there. And for you to get drafted at D2, you have to shine, man. I mean, you can't just be another guy. You have to, when people go watch that that tape, you got to pop out on the screen. I think when you look at his 40 time, you look at his athleticism, you look at just how he moves, how fluid he is with his hips. He's got it all. The footwork is there. The leadership is there. He killed the interview process from what I was told down in Mobile at the Senior Bowl. So for me, I thought it was going to really come down. I the one I was surprised about, we're about to talk about, but I really thought Jatari Carter being invited gave him a leg up on a lot of people. I thought Joshua Williams would be a high pick. And I also, of course, Marquise Bell, a lot of people were surprised he didn't get drafted, but those were my three top guys. So I'm not shocked. I think the fit is there. They have a lot of needs in the secondary. And I think outside of Ward, who's their, who's their corner number one, there's a lot of room for improvement. And with Joshua Williams, I think he's versatile enough to play the slot to play the boundary corner across from Ward, potentially move into a nickel or safety role because they just lost Tyron, Math- Ty- Tyron Matthew as well. I think his versatility is going to fit real well in, in Kansas City. And you look at the depth in that secondary, I wouldn't be surprised if he potentially has a very large role in that defense coming to 2022. Yeah, so this move right there just heightened two things for me. So one, you just mentioned Charverius Ward. He's no longer on the squad. He signed a free agency deal with the Niners. So Kansas City went out of their way by selecting McDuffie in the first round and Joshua Williams in the fourth. Kind of want to remodel and rectify their secondary outside of Legereus Sneed, due in large part because of losing Ward and then not wanting to resign Tyron Matthew. Um, He's not their traditional type of corner that they go after. Kansas City has a type. Their type is like moderately undersized or undersized a little bit. We're on a 4-4, got the tenacious ball skills, but they're kind of a small, undersized-ass corner that can tackle, foot a lane, do all the little things in the secondary. He's 6'3". He has wide receiver roots dating back to high school. And I thought the two things that solidified his standing was his performance at the senior bowl, like you stated, um, ran like the fastest full-speed time, I think 22 miles per hour, something crazy like that. And then he balled out at his pro day even more to kind of solidify that he's an athletic freak that can take it to the next level. And like you stated, to be a D2 selection in really the first four rounds, that means you're a quality talent that dominated at your level of play. And they feel like that they can kind of acquiesce that into pro football. And so like you stated, he's going to have a great chance to start because outside of Sneed and maybe Mike Hughes, we'll see maybe his job is up in the air with McDuffie. Those second and third cornerback spots are open and he has a chance to come in fill it nicely, compete, and maybe get a starting job. 
and they're going to need a 6-3 frame on the outside against the likes of T. Higgins and Jamar Chase, the competition that they got to face in Cincinnati, and even Buffalo with Stephon Diggs and Gabriel Davis. The other guy that I want to talk about is the Kobe Durant. I feel like he got put in the best situation um, going to the Los Angeles Rams, and the Rams, scarily enough, we'll talk about it later, had the best draft despite not having the first <laughs> two-round picks, but Durant was a guy um, really shined at the Shrine game. He shined at the Combine. Um, the breakneck speed was on display in Indy. He's got his ball awareness. And a lot of guys focus on the fact that his performance against Clemson is what pigeonholed a lot of scouts onto what he can be at the pro level. Had a two interception performance against the Clemson Tigers when Jackson State, well, not Jackson State, South Carolina State played against him. And this is a Rams secondary that's looking for a variety of young players to step in and perform outside of Jalen Ramsey. Darius Williams is a Jacksonville Jaguar. I know they made the draft trade to get back um, Hill, who used to be on their squad with the Cleveland, got him back. But that second cornerback, that really slot spots open. Durant had experience doing that. And so they're going to have a ton of competition with the young guys. Um, how confident are you Durant can come in and get playing time? And how confident are you that the Rams can develop him into being the cornerback that they desire? Because Darius Williams was another guy, undersized corner from Baltimore. He was on Baltimore Ravens practice squad. Comes to the Rams. He develops and really gets that big contract deal that probably was never in the works if he stays with the Ravens. Do you think Durant can have a similar story? Yeah, man. I mean, looking at the fit, like you said, uh, there's no pressure on Jacoby Durant. He don't have to start this year, probably don't have to start next year. That secondary is so loaded from top to bottom, and that defense is loaded with Aaron Donald and some of the talent that they have in the front end with Leonard Floyd as well up there. But for me, man, you look – what a great mentor to have in Jalen Ramsey and, and that coaching staff as well. Plus, you got the HBCU connection with K.J. Black – taking the coaching job up there as well. Got to see got to see Kobe Durant up close multiple times in 2019 when they played and in 2021 when they played. Uh, I love it, man. I, I'm hoping that he finds a role. I guess the question for me is, can he fit the slot corner role? Because those two outside corner spots are probably taken in L.A. If he can find a way to move into a slot corner role, maybe a nickel role where he can kind of roam around at the corner spot, that's probably where he's going to get most of his playing time. But for right now, man, just go up there and develop. That's the only thing that Kobe Durant has to do. Make the roster and just go up there and de develop. And when you get your opportunity, ball out. And when you look at it, the number one wide receiver is always going to be taken by Ramsey. He's going to travel with the number one guy, just like he did Jamar Chase in the Super Bowl. So then you got that, you know, corner two, three, maybe four spot, depending on what type of defense they want to run. I think he could fit in one of those roles. I think he can fit in that DB three role where you're always going to need depth. And I think you saw with the Bengals, the depth hurt. Like once you got down to like to the Eli Apples and lower, the Bengals got picked apart by Cooper Cup and those wide receivers. So you're going to need depth. I think Jacoby Durant is going to fit perfectly. I see him having an extremely successful NFL career. And if he develops into what I think he can, you're talking about a scary duo with Jacoby Durant across from Jalen Ramsey, man. That the potential there is perfect. But I do think with his height. He's a, he's a bit undersized at corner, which is why I wasn't expecting him to go fourth round. I'll be completely honest. I, I told people on my show probably sixth, seventh due to him being shorter. But listen, he I, I think that's that sh his height makes him a perfect opportunity to step into that slot corner role because you don't want your slot corners to be those long rangey guys. Man, you never know. But I love the fit. I think if he can, if they can go back and win another Super Bowl, man, get him a ring. I would love to see it. Yeah, we helped Durant a ton during that combine. He ran a 4-3-6. 
And I think that validated his speed, his acceleration, and agility on tape. So that gives the flexibility of a LA Rams to feel like, you know what, we'll take a flyerman in the fourth. Ideally, just jumpstart his career. He'll be our slot guy. And over time, as guys get older, or maybe we don't want to pay some cats in the secondary, he can develop and take that number two cornerback role. But he's a pro prospect. And I really feel glad for South Carolina State. Because if Durant sticks and he becomes what Hargraves is becoming, what Darius Leonard has, South Carolina State, all of a sudden, in the HBC realm, is a pro pipeline because that's three defensive players that have hit home, and he's a guy that can come in and really hold his own and be a huge key piece in that Rams secondary for years to come. Um, the third guy I want to touch base on is James Houston. He was the first one drafted from the SWAT conference, um, had an elite pass rushing grade, 95.7 as an outside edge rusher, helped him win SWAT newcomer of the year. Um, Deion Sanders, we've seen this before on his documentary, really, in my opinion, changed James Houston's pro career trajectory, made him become an outside rusher. And I think that helped him get drafted into the sixth round by the Detroit Lions. And he has a great chance to play and perform well as a full-time edge rusher. And this is a Niners, not a Niners, but a Lions defensive front that is really reshaping itself. They got Aiden Hutchinson, uh, the second pick overall. James Houston's another depth piece for them in the D-line spot. The likelihood of him making the team is how high in your eyes? And the big question that we need to find out is what will help his pro career long-term, being a full-time linebacker or being a full-time edge rusher? Oh, um, you know, for me, I thought this is about where he would go just due to him being a tweener in terms of, you know, his size. I, I told people on my live stream, fifth to seventh round, got called crazy, but here we are in the sixth round of the Lions. I thought it was a good fit. You know, you mentioned Aiden Hutchison and also the Lions, their biggest critique for probably the last five years, I would say, has been they just don't have anyone to get after the quarterback. They haven't had a game-changing edge rusher. I mean, I don't know. You're more the NFL guy than me. I can't think of the last time they had a game-changing edge rusher. It's been a minute. And uh, for me, they got one in Aiden Hutchison potentially, but for Houston, he's for for me looking at it logically, he's the toughest person to kind of project in the NFL because you know if he wants to be a full time edge rusher, he's gonna have to get bigger and uh, not height wise, but he's got to put on more weight. You're gonna get tossed around at that weight right now. You're just too small, so right now you're kind of relegating him to a almost like a specialized pass rusher. He only comes in on third and long, second and long maybe, and just his one job is to go grab the quarterback. Now the question is, do the Lions see him as a long-term option at linebacker? That's that's the million-dollar question, because if they do, playing him with the outside linebacker spot with a little bit of time as a pass rusher in certain situations, you can make some money at that. That's how you stay on a roster. They love guys who can get after the quarterback. And – for me, I think he has a pretty good chance to make the team. I mean, you know, with a six-round pick, with his production, I know he's going to work, you know, work work his you-know-what off. But for me, I'd give it probably 80% chance. I mean, I feel like that's fair for a six-round pick. You never know, you know, what the lines are looking for. But if he can prove himself as a linebacker and a specialized edge rusher, I think that's where he'll make his money. I don't see him fitting full-time at either role. But for me, man, looking at looking at it moving forward, I really want him to be successful. I, I think when you look at the momentum that HBCUs have with four draft selections this year, with all the undrafted free agent mini camp advice that they got, it it would it would really for me be a step back in all this momentum. If yes, we got James Houston drafted, but what if he don't make the roster? 
then what what was it all for? I mean, because it's great to see you got a draft selection, but if he ain't on a roster, then does it count in the long run? And so for me, I would love to see him make the roster. I want to see if he can be a contributor this year. And for me, man, if he makes the roster, this year's a telltale sign. Where do they put him? Because wherever they put him this year, looking at what Dan Campbell wants in his defense, where he's just, I mean, Dan Campbell's one of a kind. Hard nose. He wants his players to be as nasty as possible. I think James Houston can fit that. For me, James Houston was a smart pick. I want to see how Dan Campbell and that, that staff uses him. And this year, man, it, if we're looking back in a year and they got him in that weird linebacker to pass rush, specialized pass rusher role, I think he's going to have a great career. But for me, just personally, I don't see him fitting full time at either one. Great points indeed. And you're right. This is important for Houston because out of all the HBCU prospects that got drafted, I think he's the guy where if he makes it, it justifies his transfer portal experience. He went to Jackson State to really become a pro prospect and it got him drafted. But for him to stick around and really embrace and fully develop into the pro potential talent that he could be would be huge. And I think he's in a perfect situation doing large part because Detroit, they're looking for pass rushers. Charles Harris was the best pass rusher this past season. He had a career year personified by eight sacks. So that's not a good defensive front if your leading sad guy has eight sacks on the season. So you get Aiden, he's going to be obviously the franchise cornerstone, the foundational piece. Um, James Houston can stick around, I think, in large part because, like you said with Campbell, he likes high-energy, high-effort guys, and that's James Houston all day. But there were two moments in time, really at the NFL PA Bowl, where he was at linebacker, and I thought he did a pretty good job. So that opens up the door in terms of him being able to have a a dual-S role where situationally you're rushing the passer, and maybe if we have injuries at the linebacking spot or we have an open linebacking competition, he could perform well, win, get a starting gig, and then now you're kind of at that off-ball linebacker role where now every off-ball linebacker at the NFL dropping coverage, rush the passer, best of both worlds. So he needs to be the guy to be successful to make this HBCUs get drafted to the league stick because I can make a case with your tier quarter. We're going to get to him next. He always had an NFL-type build to him. The Kobe Durant was always on NFL guys' radars. Even though Marquise Bell didn't get drafted, he was always on NFL radars. James Houston was not when he transferred from Florida. He became that at JSU. Deion Sanders helped transform him into what he is today to get ready for this moment. So I really hope he's able to put it all together and it all works out with the Lions. Last but not least, the fourth and final HBCU prospect that got drafted. Swag's second one of the weekend was Jatir Carter. Um, Chicago also took the only HBCU prospect two years ago in Tennessee State's Latavius Simmons, who's also an offensive lineman. And this was a pick by the Bears. They decided to resolve their O-line issues later in the draft to kind of hit home. And Carter has probably one of the more better chances to make the roster as a guard. That's where the NFL projects him as. And he was one of the best pass protecting offensive linemen in the SWAC. And I read that the Bears head scout guy said that what helped Carter get drafted was his performance against Troy. Um, what did you see out of him throughout his time at Southern that had you believe he could stick in the league? And with an open guard spot in Chicago, because James Daniels is no longer there, Carter has a chance to hit the ground running, compete, and maybe get a starting job. Yes, as a seventh-round guard. Is that a reality this season? Yeah, I mean, for me, I never thought he was a tackle. He's just not tall enough. I mean, I, I believe – Southern had him listed almost three inches more than what he actually measured in at the senior bowl. Like he just didn't have the height. 
And I, they played him at guard all week in Mobile, man. I've been telling people on my show, he's playing guard. They're not putting him at offensive tackle. And he performed well. I mean, really and truly, and you and you look at his career, I don't think people know this. In four years, Jatari Carter never allowed a sack in his entire career. I mean, that is – I don't care if you're playing D3 in AIA football to allow no sacks and – that much time is just ridiculous and only allowed eight QB pressures his whole career. He had a 93.2 pass block grade last year, according to pro football focus. That is ridiculously high. I mean, that that's elite level production. Now moving to guard. The question is, does your pass blocking technique transfer because the roles as a guard and a tackle in pass blocking change and two is your run blocking going to develop because the, the I guess rules or responsibilities and run blocking change when you're a tackle and a guard you don't have those plays now where you're the backside guy and all you got to do is set the back edge that it's a real easy thing when the run's going to, uh, away from you as offensive tackle as, as a guard how's he going to pull is he going to get off the ball fast enough is he going to be able to work his double teams up to the second level there's a lot of questions you have to answer, and I think that impacted his draft grade. If he measured up to what he was, according to Southern's website, and goes as offensive tackle, I think he goes he goes much sooner. But due to the fact that they don't know how his skill set's going to transfer inside because we haven't really seen him play guard, that was what made Jatari Carter drop. But for me, being a former O-lineman, I love what I see from him. I think he has the skill set to be successful at the NFL level. And I agree with you, man. I give him, you know, excluding the fourth-round guys because they're going to make the roster. They're, they're guaranteed on the roster pretty much. Out of all the other players who signed undrafted free agent, mini camp invites, I give Jatari Carter the best chance to make the roster, in my opinion. Yeah, I do too. Um, look, this was huge for Jatari Carter. Uh, Chicago, they're rebuilding their offensive line around Justin Fields. Now, potentially, will it work? We'll see. I know Tevin Jenkins is going to be a full-time left tackle next year. Jason Peters held that down the year prior. It looks like in the interior, they're going to go the youth movement with Carter getting a good chance, and they drafted another prospect as well. Um, his name doesn't, um, you know, I can't remember his name right now, but great chance. I think what helps him a lot is the strength aspect. He's, he's strong as heck, and at the senior bowl, going against um, interior guys that utilize the strength of Misty to kind of push the lineman back and gain that leverage advantage. He held his own against that type of um, pass rushing technique. And so Bears are comfortable taking a chance on him in the seventh. And like you stated, like we both stated, he has a great chance to make it. And this would be huge, I think, for Southern in its totality because for a while we've all said Southern has one of the best offensive lines in the SWAT. And to see one of their guys make it to the league stick and have a lengthy career will be important. And he's going to have the opportunity to protect Justin Fields and his development, which is under question a little bit for the Bears because Bears fans aren't happy that they took one receiver and they took more of a plunge defensively. And I don't have a problem with that because they did draft Kyler Gordon and Jaquan Brisker. Those are two amazing talents. Um, so we wrapped up the guys that got drafted. Now we got to talk about the elephant in the room. Marquise Bellman, he was number two on my top 10 HBCU draft prospects. I thought for sure he would get the look, especially after he got past all of the top heavy aspects of the safety class, and he did not. Now, he is on the Dallas Cowboys, signed as an undrafted free agent. They're guaranteeing some of his contract, and I look at Dallas's roster, he's going to have a great chance to not make the, not just make the team, but maybe even get the starting spot, because outside of J-Ron Curse, that free safety spot's open going, when we talk about Donovan Wilson and the Monte KZ. But how shocked were you that Marquise didn't make the cut? And what do you think 
was the deterring factor in terms of him not being able to go in the first seven rounds as a draft prospect? You know, I don't know what it was. Uh, for me, like I heard from a really good family source I have, there was an off-the-field incident that got picked up by the NFL teams. I don't know what it was. They said it was a one-time incident, and that really turned a lot of NFL draft teams off of drafting him. So I, I don't know exactly what that was. They said it got resolved, but there were some teams that had some, I guess, question marks around them. So I guess that is probably the reason why he fell as far as he did and not get drafted. But for the Cowboys, you look, if you get the word that a lot of NFL teams are off of him, why not just wait till the end of the draft and sign him? So, I mean, for the Cowboys, I think they all, every one of us kind of marked the Cowboys as the top option for Marquis Bell. They brought him in for a bunch of visits. They, they've been on him since the, since the beginning. So, for me, I'm not surprised he went there. I think they outbid the Eagles, if I'm not mistaken, was the report that the Eagles had a deal in place and the Cowboys said, no, not today. He'll make the roster. That safety that safety group that they have is, is atrocious. Out of sight of, like, really Keanu Neal, who's moving back to safety this year, they don't have anybody. They don't have any playmakers there. And so – you look at Marquise Bell, the production that he had, I, I really like him, man. You know, for me, before I learned about the off-the-field stuff, I thought, like, I agree with you. For me, I thought he had the potential to be the first HBC prospect off the board. I know I didn't expect him to go as early as some. I mean, I had him probably right around the late fourth, fifth, maybe sixth round. But, you know, as you know, working for Pro Football Focus and both of us covering the draft, there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes that – people aren't really privy to in the interview process. And, and you know this, I mean, players have spoken openly. I mean, these NFL teams hire like private investigators to research you. I mean, if, if you tripped a puppy when you were three, they're going to ask you about it at the NFL combine. And so I feel like it really became a sense of nitpicking for Marquise Bell, but as we also know, sometimes being an undrafted free agent and being able to pick your perfect situation, negotiate a contract is a better option than being drafted by somebody who might not value as much in the sixth, seventh round. So, like, I agree. It's disappointing he wasn't drafted. I, it would have been great to see five HBCU players, three players from the SWAC drafted. But ultimately, I think he landed in the best landing spot. He'll make the roster. And, man, if we're looking back and he and he makes a pro ball or two or becomes a starter for the Cowboys, man, ev everyone's going to re remember that over the fact that he wasn't drafted. So I think it's the it, – got to play the long-term game with Marquise Bell. As long as he becomes successful, everything's going to be just fine. I agree, and the off-the-field situation makes sense in terms of why he wasn't drafted because from a measurable standpoint, from the way FAMU played him, he was like a slot guy. He was their box safety, their free safety, last line of defense. All of that translates to the pro level. So if it was an off-the-field thing that prevented him to get drafted, it's unfortunate. Um, we've seen that hasn't stopped other organizations from drafting highly touted guys. But, yep. you know, it is what it is. He is going in the best situation with Dallas because it's an open competition. And outside of J. Ron Curse and Keanu Neal, who I think now is a full-time backer now, no longer mm -hmm. a safety, he's got a great chance to not only make the roster but start week one. And Dallas, man, they're getting, getting a playmaker. Um, he reminds me a lot of Chauncey Gardner-Johnson in terms of his versatility. But I, the thing that I know for a fact, Dan Quinn prize, he wants his safeties to tackle to be around the football, be a physical presence, be a part of the run game, as well as send a message on the back end. Bell does all of that. He went out of his way and picked the squad he wants to play with in Dallas, and I'm a root for him, and I hope it works out for him as well. The Cowboys are going to get a playmaker, and 
um, Marquise Bell. He's going to come in, do the right thing, make the right plays, and sky will be the limit for him. Um, progressing next to surprising first-round draft picks. I have uh, about four in front of me, so I'm going to kind of dive into my surprise, and I want to hear your analysis on it, and then maybe you can bounce back yours. And let's just touch base on the obvious elephant in the room, Trevon Walker going number one overall. I didn't think it was a possibility until two days prior to the draft when it was clear that Trent Baalke zeroed in on Trevon Walker as his guy. And from a measurable standpoint, Blue, he's got it all. He's got the 4-5-40, the 35-inch vertical, the 12-3 broad jump. He's 6'5", 272 pounds. As an edge rusher, he'll have much more of an enhanced pass rushing role at the next level opposite of their prior first-round pick, Josh Allen. But they've done this before. They took Caleb on chase on who is not as raw as Trevon Walker, and he hasn't panned out at all. So the jury's out that the Jags don't develop D-linemen. They really don't. I'm going to be honest. Dante Fowler never developed there. Caleb on chase on's never developed there. And now we're expecting a raw prospect like Trevon Walker to come in and do it. Josh Allen came in and he was that guy out of Kentucky. It's just, he played for Kentucky. So a lot of people didn't look at him as that premier edge guy. Trevon Walker was on a national championship defense and he never stood out on film. Blue, are you confident that he can put it all together and look to his upside or he will just be a flash in a pan and never lives up to his potential in Jacksonville? You know, you always hear this about prospects. And I think this encompasses how I feel about Trevon Walker. He has the highest ceiling, but also the lowest floor. It's, it's such a wide range with him, man. And, you know, you look at his athleticism. It's there. The dude is just a freak athlete off the edge. And for me, I was talking to some people about this today. It's just so hard to evaluate players off of that Georgia defense because – it's such a team-oriented system. You look at, I mean, if you took N'Kobe Dean, you took Trevon Walker, you took Jordan Davis and put them on another defense without as much talent as they had, what would their stats be, man? Outrageous. But Kirby Smart and, you know, at that time, also I'm, I'm blanking on his name. He just took the job at Oregon. The D coordinator over there, they, they just preach do your job. It's the same reason at people at the Patriots might not produce as many stats as they used to, but they go out and win championships. It's a team thing, and it paid off in the long run. And so for me, even though his production wasn't there, when you watch this and break down his technique, his explosiveness, his pursuit, his aggression at the D-line, his hand placement, it's all there. But the problem is I think people, when you come to a first-round pick, they want to see the the 20 sacks. They want to see the 30-something tackles. They want to see Will Anderson last year is pretty much what they're looking for in a first-round pick. They want to see the Miles Garrett, the Jadavian Clownies that are just undeniable talents. But for me, they took a big risk here because – and if the way I always explain it to people is you always have to look at it almost in a vacuum. If Trevon Walker wasn't – if you remove the first-round pick element of this, it's a good pick because Trevon Walker is a great athlete, but I think you look at the first-round expectations now that you're placing on him. Now, being the first-round pick, you need him to be a Miles Garrett. You need him to be an Aaron Donald. You need him to be a Von Miller. You need him to produce like that, be a top edge in the NFL, and there's so, the jury's still out of if he can be that. And the other flip side is, on this, just a tangent, is how big this was for Kirby Smart as well to get Trevon Walker drafted number one overall because I don't think a lot of people are thinking about it like this. 
Nick Saban's never had a number one overall pick. And since he was the head coach of Alabama, Dabo's only had one, and that was Trevor Lawrence. And we'll, the jury's still out on him as well. But not only that, he got a number one pick from probably his fourth best player on defense. And what that does in terms of recruiting in the age of the transfer portal, the age of why would I sit on the bench when I can go to another place and start? Well, now Kirby Smart can walk in a five-stars home and be like, listen, I know you see the two five-stars ahead of you. Why don't you just come sit on the bench and pull a Trevon Walker? You don't need 10 sacks here. You just need to come to Georgia and do your role, and everything's going to work out. So it was a big win for Georgia, but I do agree. As much as I wouldn't have taken him number one, for me looking at it, it wasn't surprising because I think we all heard the rumblings that, I mean, Trevon Walker went from maybe a second-round pick in, what, mid-January to being the number – I mean, the hype train that he got pushed behind him over these past few months were amazing to watch. Whoever his agent is, whoever he hired to do his PR, they deserve raises because that was an amazing job by Trevon Walker and who represents him. But I do agree with you. It's a risky pick. But also, if we're looking back in five years and he's a three-time pro bowler, they look like geniuses for taking that chance. So as much as I do agree with you, I, I think when you look at the other edge prospects, there's a lot of questions about Hutchinson after his performance against um, against Georgia, shocked, you know, funnily in the Orange Bowl, and also uh, Kayvon Thibodeau being up and down at Oregon and sometimes disappearing in the big games. I feel like any of the prospects they would have drafted number one overall would have had big question marks this year. So why not go with the with arguably the best athlete out of all of them who just won a national championship? So I, I kind of half agree with you there, but I do agree that it's a it's a risk. It's a huge risk indeed. But um, I think the unique thing about Jacksonville was that all main cogs of the draft operation, the GM, the owner, the head coach, they were all on different pages. Peterson wanted a Quanu from North Carolina State. Makes sense. Once your right tackle to kind of fortify that offensive line for your offense as you develop Trevor Lawrence, the owner wanted Aiden Hutchinson due to his image, his play, his fire, his tenacity. You get a guy that a plug and play guy that can come in opposite Josh Allen and kind of transform your defense, maybe become that overnight leader. But Trent Bulky has a type and his type dating back to the Niners is he likes long athletic edge rushers alden smith DeForest buckner eric armstead they're all like freaks of nature at their side and so the crazy thing about walker is he's got the same height as josh allen the got his teammate but he's like 12 pounds heavier and you talked about how at georgia his role was unique it was like he was the contained guy on their defense like look you're yeah. the edge contained if don't let anybody get outside of you because you're athletic as heck on sideline to sideline, if you have a chance to rush up field and get to the passer, you can, but contain and let everybody else pick up from where you kind of invited them to let through. And my only thing about Jacksonville is they just haven't had a very credible history of developing edge rushers. They've done a pretty good job at developing, you know, linebackers, Miles Jack, um, corners taking Jalen Ramsey's game to another level, but they've struck out on Caleb on chase on and, this guy's even rawer, Walker, than the chase on was coming out of LSU. I just feel like for Jacksonville's sake, if you wanted to pick somebody that is a, a guy that's kind of developing but is an immense talent, it just really comes down to how you keep him up and his energy, probably would have took Thibodeau. If you were mesmerized yeah. by the athleticism and upside, Thibodeau's a guy that can come in. He's got a way more pass rushing variety that Walker's still going to have to discover. 
and he can come in opposite of Josh Allen and wreck havoc. So we're going to see in the next four years if it pays off. But look, he killed it at the combine. You brought up his agent, whatever he did helped a lot. And what also probably helped Marcos, what was to be the number one pick when in January you were a second round prospect, you got to be a great interviewer. So he killed that process to Mm kind of get to this point right here. So it's just really going to come down to how the Jags develop him and utilize him. We can all agree Jacksonville has been looking for that second guy on the edge to help rush the quarterback. We know Walker's going to be that guy day one. Can you develop into a number one overall type talent? Uh, the second one is the Steelers. They decided to go NFL-ready prospect over upside and Kenny Pickett over Malik Willis. And we've been hearing since the senior bowl that the Steelers like Malik. But come draft time, they take the NFL-ready prospect, Kenny Pickett. Do you feel their decision is a reflection on how they see their own division becoming in the next two to three years? Because Cincinnati, they're ready to win now. Baltimore just had an injury hiatus and killed the draft. So they're going to come in and be a lot better. And Cleveland just got Deshaun. So was it a mixture of Kevin Colbert, his last time really drafting as a GM, recognizing I got to make sure Pittsburgh, when I leave, is in a place to contend with a guy under center than in a wait or see approach for the next two years in terms of a guy like a Willis so he can develop into what we expect him to be down the line? You know, for me, you know, so I guess I got a different perspective. I dropped, I think, three mock drafts. I had Pickett going to the Steelers in all three. Stretching back months ago. I, I Listen, they can say they want Willis all they want. If there's a quarterback that just won an ACC championship in your stadium, because the, the, the pit plays in Pittsburgh's, the Hans Field, he just won an ACC championship right there. He just was a Heisman finalist right there. They weren't passing him up. You just, you just, they weren't. Uh, you can't convince me they didn't know they were taking Pickett as soon as he won the ACC championship. So I guess for me, I want this shock. This, this one for me was the lock. I'll, I'll, as soon as Pittsburgh was up, I was texting people. I was like, it's Pickett. I made the live tweet. I had that one made. I was like, they're going with Pickett if he's there. For me, you look at Pickett. Yes, the hand size is a major issue. And I think last time I was on here, we talked about his combine performance. But for me, I looked at Pickett coming out of this year as similar to what a Justin Herbert was coming out a few years back where, yeah, he has some question marks because his production wasn't there compared to some of the other top guys and also had a lot of question marks in terms of he's an older guy. Why didn't he come? Why, why did he take five years to come out, et cetera? He played in, you know, a conference that didn't get as much shine similar to the ACC this past year due to Clemson not being very good. But for me, he's a mature guy. He's shown that he can win at Pitt with not a lot of talent. Outside of Jordan Addison, people act like Pitt just had an all-world team. And I, I, heard, I heard multiple analysts say, well, would Kenny Pickett be what he was without a supporting cast? And I'm like, are we, are we really saying that he had an all-world cast around him? Because Jordan Addison wasn't anything coming into the season. How, how did we how did we get here where now we're acting like he was helped by Pitt's talent, a bunch of three stars? I just for me, I don't I didn't subscribe to that. I thought he was the reason Pitt was so good. We'll see now that Addison's in the transfer portal and now Keaton Slovis steps in at Pitt. I thought he carried that team to a title. 
really and truly the defense was really good, but that offense ran through Kenny Pickett. You look at his ability to make plays out of the pocket, his ability to just launch the ball, and also for Pitt, you look at his ability to play in the weather up there too because the NFL season up in Pittsburgh can get a little – it can get cold up there. It can get rainy. You might have some snow up in Pittsburgh. Kenny Pickett's done it all. He played in your stadium – his whole career, he's he's one of the he almost feels like a hometown kid pick, if that makes sense. So it this this was a no-brainer for me. If you're gonna select a bunch of question marks, because I think Malik Willis has question marks, I'm not a big Howell fan. I'm also not a huge Desmond Ritter or also um Matt Corral fan. I just think it's a shot in the dark. It's like playing roulette with the five quarterbacks. Why not go with the Pittsburgh kid who just was a Heisman finalist and argue? out of all the quarterbacks had the best year out of all of them for me I don't feel like it's it's as risky of a pick as people like to make it seem I thought this one this one was straightforward for the Steelers I mean you need at worst case you need depth you need depth at that QB room due to everything that's happened over you know the past few months and, and years you need a lot of help in that QB room so even if he's just an average backup at least you got some depth to get you to the next few years where ultimately there's some really really good quarterbacks coming out when you put it that way, Blue, it makes a lot of sense. And we've seen this before in prior drafts. Um, guys up top utter an individual to make teams take the bait or not take the bait. And a lot of teams took the bait, <laughs> to say the least, because Malik dropped all the way to round three. But I think Kenny Pickett was, now that we think about it, looking back at it all, Pickett was always a lock for Carolina or Pittsburgh. Um, when Carolina realized they didn't have to reach full quarterback because Iquan was sitting right in their laps and they got a chance to get a prospect to rectify their offensive line issues. They took that. And then Seattle throughout the draft set the tone by saying, we're rebuilding our team at every position that's not named quarterback. We're going to hold out on that next season. And so that allowed Pittsburgh to kind of get the best quarterback on their board. And he's there at 20 and automatically Tomlin comes out and says, pick it. If all things work out, he'll be the starter which means him and Trubisky are going to be going against each other head-to-head. -head. I think he's better than Trubisky, so I'm expecting yeah. Kenny Pickett to be the starter week one. And then the resources they surrounded out around him, George Pickens, Calvin Austin to go with, Chase Claypool and Deontay Johnson reminds me a lot of those Pittsburgh Steelers receiving cores back last decade when you had and Emmanuel Najee. Sanders and, and Antonio Brown and Najee as well. Um, it reminds me of those Steelers teams back in the day with Le'Veon Bell, Antonio Brown, Martavis Bryant, Mike Wallace, you name it. And so Pittsburgh's getting our offensive identity back, but it would behoove both of us to not look at it as they realize their division is becoming a gauntlet now. Um, okay. Baltimore is going to be a lot better when healthy. Cincinnati has confidence. They're becoming an even better roster after the Super Bowl run that they made. And then Cleveland's got to show So Pittsburgh looked at this as, look, get our quarterback now, establish a foundation for the next two years. So now in year three, as we near the end of Katie Pickett's contract, we're ready to make that push in a division while our rival contemporaries may be on the downslide. So pretty good move for them there. Another one that was unique, the New England Patriots blew. Um, they made some questionable decisions. So they traded with the Chiefs to trade down. And it, that kind of shocked me because when the Chiefs traded up, they took McDuffie. And New England has cornerback issues out the wazoo. They don't have J.C. Jackson anymore. So it would have made sense to stay there and take the corner. But they trade down and select Cole Strange, who a lot of draft analysts and experts liked Cole Strange, but more so had a second to third round grade on him. So they took him there. They took Tyquan Thornton in the second round as well. That was kind of a little reach. And not to mention Bailey Zappi in the fourth round. 
Um, how surprised were you with New England's moves? And do you see their draft crash overall in the next four to five years looking back? Will there be any hits or will there be full of a lot of reaches that kind of miss due in large part because you picked them so high and they don't seamlessly fit within your program? You know, I, I'm, I'm a bit torn on it. Like, yes, when you're grading it just based off where they got people, probably not a great grade. I, I get I get the D's and the C's and whatever, you know, all the things I've seen people give them. But for me, I think I, I know I could sound crazy and I, I might look insane in four years. I might like a genius. I think this has a chance to develop into an A-plus draft class. I really do. I think a lot of these prospects, like like you say, are risk, and you might have reached on a few of them. But you look at the Patriots; they traded down, and they got they got draft capital due to that for I believe this year and next year, if I'm not mistaken. And they got a bunch of draft capital already next year. And you're looking at Belichick; you're sitting at 29. Your next pick is until I believe 50, and then 85, and then you got three fourth round picks. You look at it; they when Belichick wants somebody, he's not taking any chances of losing that player we've seen we've seen him reach for lots of picks he knows what exactly he wants at, at any given pick and he loved Cole Strange and when I being an FCS guy Cole Strange is Bill Belichick's dream like you say Cole Strange I say Bill Belichick I mean it, it's almost it, it's that important and so yes he reached was Cole Strange a first round pick in my book no but he did have I think a lot of people are saying you know taking Sean McVay's quotes to heart he had a second round grade on him by some publications he had a early third round grade so there's no guarantee that he's there at 50 I just want to put that out there for people like it this isn't like he drafted a fourth round prospect in the first round this is a second third round guy and he wanted to take a chance on him because he needed offensive linemen I believe if I'm not mistaken did they lose Shaq Mason or was it someone else they lost a guard in free agency, they have a big hole at guard in that in both guard spots. They got the tackles worked out. They got a great center. They needed a guard. And so Cole Strange fits that. You look at what he's done. He's just consistent in 86.3 overall grade this year. Good in pass blocking, good in run blocking. Allowed only one sack and five QB pressures. UT Chattanooga had their best rushing year since, I believe, 2016, 2015. He's, he's big, he's physical, he went to the Senior Bowl, he killed the interview process because he's a great kid, he's a mature kid, and what is the number one thing Belichick wants? Players that are just going to do their job and not cause problems, and that's Cole Strange. That is that is him. So, yes, it was a reach, but I do think Cole Strange could be a starter in the NFL. I do. And me, for me, he was a top four FCS prospect, just in my opinion, in my rankings. So I don't think it, it's as bad as a pick as people think. And so – Tyquan Thornton, everyone's putting him in the John Ross category just because of his 40. They're saying, oh, he's so fast. There's no way he's good. Well, did did anyone watch him at Baylor? Because he was one of their leading receivers and in a rush first offense. And he can he's he's not John Ross because John Ross could not run routes. Tyquan Thornton can run routes. He's not just a speedster, like he's a tall, rangy guy who can go make plays. I don't hate that pick. And for me, the steal of the draft was Marcus Jones from Houston. For me, I love Marcus Jones. I had him in my, I believe, top seven corners 
that dude is a dog. I got to see him close up when they played Auburn in the bowl. Or I didn't, he didn't play in that game. But I saw him the week before against Cincinnati. That was the game. He's just a baller, man. He, for me, he's going to be the guy to replace J.C. Horn. And I think he's going to be able to step up next to, I believe it's John Jones is their other corner from Auburn. And they got a bunch of depth at the safety spot with Kyle Duggar and some of those guys. I don't hate their first three picks. I think they all could develop as prospects. And for me, if you just switch Tycon Thornton with Marcus Jones, that's a fine draft. I'm all for that. And it's similar to the approach that I don't remember. If, I don't remember if people remember the Raiders. And I believe it was a few, few years ago where they selected Alex Leatherwood first. And then they got, um, I'm blanking on his name in the second. And all the draft scouts were like, if you just flip those picks, it's just a good draft. You got great value. And being an FCS guy, Pierre Strong is a stud out of South Dakota State at running back. Is that a, is that a diehard need? Probably not, but that's a guy who is a career six and a half plus yards per carry guy who was the top back in one of the top rushing attacks at the FCS level, consistent, doesn't fumble, and is just a one-hit guy where if he hits the hole, he can be gone, and he's an in-between-the-tackles guy that can be an every-down back. I don't hate it, man. Now, Bailey Zapp was a weird pick. He was formerly Houston Baptist quarterback, transferred to Western Kentucky, had an insane year. Now, that makes me look side-eyed as, okay, are we putting pressure on Mac Jones? Are we worried we don't have enough depth in case they go down? That's an interesting pick. But overall, man, I think the top three, maybe four or five picks down to Pierre Strong, I think all those guys could develop into NFL players. So I do think that people are just grading on the based on the perception that they reach. But for me, I think the Patriots, man, they got the prospects that fit their system. We'll see in three, four years if it pays off. Yeah, the Patriots and a lot of other teams as well during this draft process, they prioritize scheme fit and scheme need over, okay, best player available. So for New England, like you said, if the picks were just rearranged, this is probably like a B plus, A minus draft. Yeah. So I'm going to touch base on Cole Strange. He's a very good run blocker. So automatically he's going to come in, replace Shaq Mason, fill that other guard spot and be a part of, I think what New England's trying to establish they want to be a lot more balanced, especially as they break in a very new secondary next season. It's going to be full of a ton of rookies. So they want to be able to ground and pound. That might be why they prioritize two extra backs and Cole Strange early on within their draft selections. With Tyquan Thornton, I agree. He's not John Ross. He's DJ Chark Light, where he can run all the routes, but he's a vertical threat that can take the top off of a defense. And I think as he becomes more refined as a route runner and grows into his body even more, he can be a factor in a New England passing game that for the past few years just hasn't had a deep threat. Jacoby Myers, as undersized as he is, is a possession receiver. They got Devontae Parker, possession guy. Kendrick Bourne, in a weird way, great route runner. He's a possession yeah. guy. Ton of possession dudes. They need somebody that can take the top off the defense. Tyquan Thornton can do that. And his speed just aligns with the tape. Tape wise, he's a good watch. He's a guy that can develop into a consistent rotational receiver in your passing game. But I thought they hit it home with the corners. Marcus Jones is a return specialist, a guy that can play inside and out. That adds cornerback depth that I was kind of looking for for the squad. And then Jack Jones from Arizona State kind of got his act together with the Sun Devils, who kind of recreated and transformed his career. And when I was editing an article on PFF, a lot of guys compared Jack Jones to another corner New England took a flyer on back then, J.C. Jackson. So they're doing it all over again, kind of got that prototype, maybe he can develop into that. So the only thing I didn't like New England did 
taking Zappi in the fourth. I thought they could have used that fourth round pick to further solidify their linebacking core. Their linebacking core is kind of weak now with Dante Hightower getting there up in age. Zappi just seems like a backup quarterback selection, which is fine. I just feel like take those in the fifth or sixth round, use your fourth rounder to prioritize somebody that can come in and facilitate on the roster. Because I look at these drafts kind of like this. Your first, the first, second, third, and fourth round are guys that are going to have key parts within your team during their rookie contract, some sooner rather than later. They're going to come in and be a rotational guy, maybe a spark plug on special teams. And if somebody gets hurt, you can be like, yo, this is our rookie third or fourth round. He's going to come in, kind of be a stopgap until the vet can come back fully healthy. So utilizing that on Zappy doesn't make sense. Also feel like Zappy gives me a little Heineke in the context of arm strength isn't there, more of a system guy. If a guy's not wide open, he ain't throwing nobody open. So that's kind of what New is working with. So, okay, you drafted a guy to be Brian Hoyer's heir apparent at the backup spot. Could have used that for somebody else. But I'm going to agree with you. I don't think this draft class is super bad. But I still think as of right now, it's probably one of the worst. But I'm going to hold out a lot of hope on them to develop and be something. I have a lot of higher expectations for this class than Dallas, who kind of did the same thing New England did have a little less hope with the Cowboys because of some of their selections. We're going to dive into that a little bit later. Um, last but not least, Tobu, Minnesota and Washington. These are two teams that traded down in the first round and allowed interconference, not interconference rivals, but NFC rivals potentially to trade back up and get receivers. So Minnesota and Detroit did a transaction. You never see divisional rivals negotiate during the draft trade process, but they did. They allowed Detroit to trade up and get Jamison Williams. Arguably, a lot of people's wide receiver won during the draft process. Washington actually needed a receiver. They allowed the Saints to trade up and get Olave. While they traded down, it took Jahan Dotson and I think 16 or 19. I don't remember. So yeah, let's break 16. it down. Minnesota aspect. We know they have Justin Jefferson, but Adam Thielen is getting there up in age. They could have used that draft pick to potentially get a receiver to replace dealing down the line so for them to trade down and allow their rivals to take Jamison Williams did it shock you and how do you feel Williams can fit within the Detroit offense um for me no it didn't shock me um I'm actually trying to look at my mock draft what I had you know I had them taking Jermaine Johnson as edge rusher at 12 you know for me you're looking at the wide receiver aspect there's not an Adam Thielen type wide receiver that was available there. I think you had a bunch of guys that were big playmakers and you already have that with Jefferson. And so I don't think there was like a clear route runner kind of what Thielen brings to your offense. And also nowadays with how players are taking care of their body and we're seeing players play a lot longer. So I think the idea of like, once a player hits like 30, 31, like we need to extend that a little, like let's wait till like a player hits like 34, depending on like the position, because, you know, you look at Thielen, I believe what he had one major injury recently, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think he's for me looking back. I, I could be completely wrong because I'm not a huge NFL guy. He don't get injured a lot. I think he had one major injury in his career, and then you got Jefferson, and also you look at Dalvin Cook. They're run first team now too because I mean Dalvin Cook's is that guy. But for Minnesota trading down, they got they got Lewis Seen, who I think is a stud at the safety spot. I mean, he is no pun intended a dog. I mean, is is could be a game changer at the safety spot. And when you look at Harrison Smith at that spot, I think that was a much more pressing need than wide receiver. 
in terms of what they needed. And yeah, you know, you traded to the Lions, but let's be honest, does anyone trust Jared Goff to get him the ball? That that's that's the main question I have. And because listen, Jamison Williams was my wide receiver one with the injury. I, I don't care what anyone says. I don't care if they had to put a whole ACL back together, replace his whole leg. Jamison Williams is that guy to me. I mean, when you look at what happened to Alabama without him, you look at the Iron Bowl when he got ejected for targeting, and you look at the national championship when they they lost him at Georgia to his ultimate knee injury. Bama wins that national championship with Jamison Williams. He was dogging the Georgia defense. I mean, that Georgia defense, man, looking back, shut down everybody. I mean, they were allowing like eight points a game going into the SEC championship, and Jamison Williams embarrassed that secondary. I just absolutely embarrassed them, and nobody could do it. And they played some really good wide receivers throughout the year. You look at a Wondell Robinson, you look at some of these other high draft picks, nobody was able to do it other than Jamison Williams. And then against Auburn, you know, that offense was struggling to go. He goes out due to targeting. The offense doesn't get going until Mechie steps up in overtime, and they almost lose to Auburn, who was a terrible team last year. He was a game changer for the Alabama offense. And Bryce Young needs to cut a little piece of that Heisman trophy off and give it to Williams because without him, he doesn't win the Heisman. And Ohio, everyone looks at how are you going to pick him over the Ohio State wide receivers? Well, the Ohio State wide receivers weren't doing what he was doing. They didn't have the impact he had. They didn't have the speed he had. They did. It, he has game. If he got to go to the combine, I think he's the fastest player at the combine. I really do. I mean, you're looking at true 4 2. Sub 428 range for Jamison Williams is how fast he is. Because I saw a, a Lewis scene and a potential first round pick in Keeley Ringo next year take angles on him, and he, and he outran the angles on both of those guys who are going to be sub 44 guys. So he's just that good. So for me, you look at the Lions, they get an A plus for that. They haven't had a wide receiver like him in a long time. And you look at what they have with the Monroe St. Brown breaking out last year from USC. He's the big body guy who can make those one-on-one -on -one catches. He's the route runner. And Jamison Williams is going to be a deep threat guy that is going to complement him extremely well. So as much as you got questions about golf, for me, the trade made sense for both teams. So I actually would give both those teams a round of applause for how they did it. You got Seam, who's going to be a solid safety for Minnesota. You've got some more draft capital now to eventually go get some other needs. And for the Lions, you had to get a wide receiver to complement Brown and you needed a deep threat. And they got, in my opinion, the best one in the draft. Yeah, for Detroit, this was huge. I watched them play a few times last year, did some recaps on them. By far, them and the Saints were competing for the worst receiver room in football. And, I mean, Detroit was rolling out Quintez, Cephas, and uh, those guys, and then against Cephas and whoever was out there playing. But they're not starting caliber guys that you can lean on every Sunday. Now, Amaran St. Brown broke out in the slot, got a lot more targets. He showcased he's a slot possession guy. And so now you got Amaran in the slot. They signed DJ Chart to a one-year proving deal. He's shown throughout his career his upside is through the roof when he's fully healthy and targeted. And now you have Jamison Williams, who expects to be fully healthy around training camp. He'll be a factor. Whole different receiving room alongside TJ Hawkinson at tight end. So it helps a ton offensively. Still have Jared Groff throwing to him. This is Jared Groff. You got, you got Swift, too. Swift, too, Swift. is a problem. I like Swift, especially on the backfield. You have Swift as well. Dan Campbell loves him some DeAndre Swift. So this offense looks a lot different. And I didn't even mention the most important part of it that has developed over the past few years, their offensive line. The only oh, thing boy. that might hold them back 
is Jerry Goff. I mean, this is it for him career-wise. This is his time to prove to Detroit they can he's more than just a stopgap format quarterback. If he can kind of have a semi breakout, it'll be huge for this team. And maybe they can be a dark horse in the NFC. Now, the other aspect, Washington and New Orleans, they did transactions, both went receiver. Washington fans were livid when they traded down and let New Orleans take a lobby. Their fan base, the commander fan base, they wanted a lobby. Instead, you get Jahan Dotson. I don't have a problem with Jahan Dotson. He's like wide receiver four, five to me, but he's not better than Alave or Garrett Wilson or Traylon Burks' upside. It just feels like with Dotson, they went after their type of guy. He just reminds me of a more physical version of Terry McLaurin. But the issue I have is now you have all these receivers, six foot or under. You don't really have this massive target you can lean on. And Dotson's a guy where he doesn't really take the top off the defense. He's more so a yards after catch guy. That's a possession receiver as well. So you kind of get it to him in different ways. Would you have taken Alave over Dotson like Washington did? And will it come back to bite him that they didn't do it that way? You know, I was – I actually had the Saints draft in Olave at their original pick in my mock draft. I mean, when you're talking about looking at the draft picks and who's going to fit where, or like what player fits that team the best, I thought Olave to the Saints was arguably one of the best player to team fits in the draft because you've got a Michael Thomas on the outside. You've got, you, you got your outside guys. You need a burner that can play the slot and get separation. And that's Chris Olave. He fits exactly what New Orleans needs at the wide receiver spot. Love it. That's an A++ pick for the Saints. Great job. Glad you traded up. You got your guy. You saw in, for me, the Saints have one of the best first rounds. You get an offensive tackle to replace Teron Armstead and Trevor Penning, and you get Olave, which arguably solves your biggest wide receiver need. Killed it. Congrats to the Saints on that. But when you're looking at Washington, Jahan Dotson isn't better than Chris Olave, in my opinion. And as much as I still think Dotson could be a good wide receiver, let me just say that because I saw what he did against Auburn with Penn State. He had like 11 catches. He was the only option for Penn State a lot of the season on the offensive side of the ball. But I still think they reach, man. I didn't have Jahan Dotson as a top 16 player in this draft. I just, I really didn't. And you're looking, go down the list, Traylon Burks was still available. He got picked not too long after him. Um, Going down, Christian Watson was still available as well. I mean, you had some really talented guys still on the board, and I just don't know if Jahan Dotson was, is going to be in the long run better than any of them. And I had Jahan Dotson in the second to third round, really range, probably mid-second. I just think pick 16 is a reach. is similar to kind of the, what we were talking about with Cole Strange, where if you draft him in the second or third, that's an A-plus pick. That's, that, that's solid. He can develop into a nice guy, but – now you got top 16 expectations on you. Is Jahan Dotson going to live up to that? I don't know. You know, you look at what they have at wide receiver. I believe they still got Curtis Samuel. They do have McLaurin. You know, both of those guys can be deep threats, really and truly. I mean, one of them is they're both speedsters. So could Jahan Dotson be a nice offset in terms of a route runner underneath option where you can hit him on the drags, you can hit him on the curls, you can hit him on the out routes and let him go make plays with the ball? Possibly. And it can work out good. But I just think, man, the combination. And I'm not even, and I'm not even a Washington fan. You could possibly have McLaurin, you could possibly have Olave, and you can have Curtis Samuel. Sign me up for that. Every, I mean, everybody is sub four three. 
they're flying around and you have so much potential now to to go into a weak division and win that division if your quarterback spot can get figured out so I think it was a bit of a reach by Washington a plus 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 trade for the Saints but I do think Washington probably should have stuck there and drafted Olave yeah I agree I think their fan base agrees it just felt like a Washington type receiver and in my opinion, maybe a potentially a replacement for Curtis Samuel who just can't stay healthy on the field. So, all right, at 16, you take your wide receiver two, in essence. That's fine. I just feel like, like you said, Dotson's more of a second-round talent. You could have picked guys who have first-round grade due to their upside. I think with Jahan, he is who he is. Uh, he's not going to get that much taller. He can add on some weight, but he's a possession guy who is an underrated yak individual. Um, great catch radius. He's tough as nails. He's going to go out there, put his body on the line and be a playmaker. But this their receiving room is very undersized. And I just worry against taller physical corners. You know, Dotson may be able to survive, but can McLaurin do so? Can Deami Brown, who's also on her squad, do so? And how is this going to help Carson Wentz? I thought Carson Wentz has been at his best with taller catch radiuses. Now he's got to be even more supremely accurate with undersized weapons on the outside. I just don't know. I feel like they missed out on a good one, bypassing Alave. So to wrap up this segment, we're going to go to best draft classes, worst draft classes. Um, so, Blue, off rip, who was your best draft class? This name, one of them that was your best draft class um, that you felt like coming away, they set the tone for a valuable foundation moving forward. The Baltimore Ravens. Uh, it's got to be the Ravens, man. Oh, my Lord. I mean, you look at their first round. You know, I called on another show. I said I thought Kyle Hamilton was going to drop. I really felt like there were concerns about his athleticism and his speed and sometimes being lost in the open field. But to get Kyle Hamilton at 14, that the expectations that come with the top five pick are high. 14, if you can get a player like Kyle Hamilton, take him. And then you get arguably my top offense, well, one of my top, my top interior offensive linemen in the draft. I'll say that. And Tyler Lindenbaum, who is, I believe, the highest graded offensive lineman in like pro football focus history for two straight years now, is just a consistent piece who, in my opinion, it could be a pro bowler year one. I mean, that's how high I am on Tyler Lindenbaum. And then you get an edge. He's hurt, but would have been probably a top, what, 15 pick in a Jabo. Now he's hurt. You get him at 45 to solidify the edge. And if he's healthy on top of, um, I believe it's um, Awe on the other side, you have a disgusting edge combo in Baltimore. And then you got, in my opinion, probably the second best defensive tackle in Travis Jones out of UConn, who has been balling, put on a show at the Senior Bowl. That defensive line is going to be nasty. And that and I thought Kyle Hamilton is going to work real well in that secondary. And then looking back, you got my top two tight ends in the draft and Charlie Kohler and Isaiah Likely. You got a guy who I think Charlie Kohler is a Mark Andrews 2.0. Really, he can block, he can make, he, he can route run, and he, he can route some DBs up and go make plays. And he's just a big body guy who's going to go win that one on one opportunity. And you got Isaiah Likely who's just a Kyle, a Kyle Pitts clone and a really truly a Darren Waller clone where he's a tall, 
lanky type guy who is extremely fast and athletic and you can utilize him in the slot as a wide receiver and he's just bigger and a red zone threat is there they got the two best tight ends and then Jalen Armour Davis Alabama has a really high upside as well I don't think he really found his role in that talented Alabama team I mean let's just be honest that defense was ridiculous they got a lot of guys with high upsides and also at the end Tyler Batty out of Missouri as well at the running back spot could be a great depth piece behind what they already have a running back but when you're looking at picks they're two first rounds or second and third round that's all a plus picks man and then you nail charlie kohler in the fourth round you get isaiah likely in the fourth round as well which gives you some cap flexibility when mark andrews is requiring contracts and things like that you potentially can move on you got two great young pieces listen the ravens did an absolutely great job in this nfl draft and that team like you said earlier is going to be scary going into 2022 and even the 2023 season. Yeah, so let's talk <clears throat> about Kyle Hamilton. It was really important for him to find the ideal fit because I think during the pre-draft process, individuals realize, you know what? He's probably not Eric Berry, like a top five guy. He has vulnerabilities within his game. He's a little bit stiff. Um, He's tall, somewhat awkward. He's not that free-ranging, free-safety, last-line-of-defense type of guy. So no longer was he in the top ten. But he fell to an even better situation inside the top 15 with the Ravens because Marcus Williams is going to be their Ed Reed. He was the Saints Ed Reed, so to speak, in New Orleans as that last line of defense guy. Hamilton can now be an enhanced box safety with tremendous upside because now he'll be able to cover tight ends in one-on-one -on -one situations. A little bit more of a comfortable feeling than having to be that protector as the last line of defense. So that's amazing, to say the least. Tyler Lindenbaum was solid. It's just... You have to wonder what's the run scheme going to be. He's more of a zone run guy. That's not Baltimore style. But if they're able to switch it up with variance and whatnot, it could work out for them. And then with the tight end aspect, they're doing the – it took two, actually. They're going to try the two tight end situation again. They did it with uh, Mark Andrews and Henry, um, Hunter Henry's brother. I forgot his first name. It didn't work out with them there. So they're going to try it again with Charlie Kohler. I like what I saw from Charlie Kohler. I'll tell you, I think he's a natural route runner, a solid pass catcher with an underrated blocking asset. And as you see with the Ravens, they traded Marquise Brown to the Cardinals. It looks like from a receiving standpoint, their weapons are going to be their tight ends. I mean, this is where Lamar Jackson is at his best as a passer, excuse me, the middle of the field. So now you have Mark Andrews and Charlie Kohler to lean on, as well as Isaiah Likely, who I think gets a little stronger, kind of built into his body, becomes a slightly better blocker. The upside for him is enormous, it's kind of like what Evan Ingram wasn't able to translate coming out of Ole Miss. So that's important as well. And then David Ajabo and Travis Jones, you hit it on the head. Travis Jones was the second best defensive tackle in the draft behind Logan Hall, who Tampa took at the top of the first round. I know a lot of guys don't watch UConn. UConn sucks in football. They haven't been good for a while, but he was the common denominator defensively on that team that got things done. He's coming in as their nose, very important in the 3-4 setup. He's going to be an impact player. And eventually, when David Ajabo is healthy and able to be on the field, him and Awe on the outside together working in tandem as pass rushers is phenomenal. This Ravens defense recreated himself in the next two years. So they're going to be a, probably a top five, top ten defense in a two-year span very quickly. They had a depth at the corner spots. They got edge rushers with tremendous upside. Got one of the better premier defensive tackles. And then on the offensive end, beef up that tight end room, get you one of the best centers. They had a killer draft. Now, I want to touch base on the Jets had an equally killer draft. That was where my next pick. <laughs> all three of the first rounders then got the best running back available in Brees Hall. 
How do you feel they set the tone foundation-wise in the Big Apple? And do you see this draft class maybe even making a surprising run in the AFC playoff picture this season? I don't know about a playoff run, man, because you got, you know, you look at what the Dolphins did. And we'll see what Tua is, but Tyree Hill, Jalen Waddle, um, Mike Gusecki at tight end. That defense was pretty good last year, too. And they got an offensive guy now in 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 the head coach role that could do that possibly if man, if he can get Tua to be half of what he was last year, that team's gonna be just hard to beat. And then Buffalo, man, it's their division to lose. Unless, uh, knock on wood, but unless Josh Allen goes down, they're probably winning that division. And then the Mac Jones played really well last year for the Patriots. We'll see what that, that the offense, the wide receiving core really and truly. We'll see what that turns out to be because I think, uh, for me, I have a lot of questions about the potential of their receiving core, but I think the Jets are going to be much improved. It really hinges on Zach Wilson. I mean, he did not have a good year. I wasn't sold on him coming into the draft. I'm still not sold on him. But when you look at the rest of the team, they got – you look at – they got Sauce at pick four. They got Wilson at pick 10, and they got Jermaine Johnson at pick 26. All those, all those guys are monsters. I mean, I had Sauce for me – if I'm looking at my big board, I had I had Sauce as the number one prospect in the class over everybody. I, I think Sauce is that type of player. When I when I tell people I think he's Jalen Jalen Ramsey, that's the type of talent I think. I mean, you're looking at him. I wouldn't be surprised by the end of this year he could be a top five corner in the NFL. That's how good I really do think his ceiling is. You look at what he did at Cincinnati with arguably, you know, Kobe Bryant's really good. Brian Cook also got drafted this year, but he was the guy. I mean, people just won't throw at him. Never allowed a touchdown. I believe he allowed quarterbacks to only complete 26% of their passes throughout his career. His stats are just insane. He's that long, fast, athletic, has the ball skills. He can do it all. So I love Sauce at pick four for them. They did not have a corner one. Sauce is a day one starter for them. And then they get Wilson from Ohio State. I believe I had him at wide receiver two or three for me. But he, his potential's through the roof, too. He can be a wide receiver, one or two for them from day one as well. And then you look at pick 26. I had Jermaine Johnson in my top 10 in terms of overall prospects, and they got him at pick 26. That guy's that guy, again, You they got three day one starters, man, in the first round. I mean, all three of their first-round picks should be a starter for their team this year. And Jermaine Johnson, with his length, his athleticism, his ability to go get after the quarterback. When you mix that with what they already have inside of Quinn and Williams, that, that defense looks really good with Sauce at the corner position as well. And their linebacking core is coming along as well. I think they need kind of a go-to guy at the middle linebacker spot, but we'll see. And then you get Brees uh, Hall. I, I've been on him for two years now. I Coming into last year, I thought he was running back one in college football. He is – and every down guy, I mean, you can give the ball to him 25 times and he's coming right back with it. He does not get tired. He has the explosiveness. He has the ability to bounce off tacklers. He can't, his center of gravity is so perfectly low to the ground. He's not going to go down easily. He has the speed. I love Barice Hall as running back one for them. So you're looking at four guys out of their first four picks that potentially could be starters. And then Jeremy Ruckert, as much as, the wide, the wide receivers at Ohio State got all the shine. He was arguably one of the best pass-blocking tight ends in college football. And so I think Ruckert as well gives them a nice piece at the tight end spot. And Max Mitchell as well out of Louisiana Lafayette, 
he was part of that O line that I, the the recent Jackson State transfer Tyler Brown was a part of, where they were the Joe Moore Award semifinalist with the Alabama offense line that won the award. He comes from a strong pedigree of we're just he, he the hard nose, do your job, and if he can fill into one of those tackle roles across from I'm blanking on who they drafted number one last year, uh, Makai Becton, at the other offensive tackle spot he potentially could add at least some depth to potentially be a starter. I thought the Jets, for me, had the second best draft out of everybody. Yeah, the Jets killed it. Um, starters with their first-round picks, three of them. Look, they arguably took cornerback one, wide receiver one, and a top 15 player Yeah, with all of their picks. You know, Jermaine Johnson is probably the most complete edge rusher coming out. And I, I, ne- I didn't really understand why he dropped that low. I, I don't know, personally, but hey. It worked out for the Jets immensely. He's a guy that can rush the passer. He can defend the run. He's foundationally sound. He's got all the tools you need. And looking at that Jets front line coming into this year, they're going to have Quinn Williams, Jermaine Johnson, and Carlos Dunlap back because he didn't play last year due to an injury. That front line looks a lot different. And we all know what Robert Seller preaches, especially with Sauce Corner on the back end. They like to bring pressure with their front seven, dating back to his D.C. times with the Niners, and let their corners be physical. Have a guy in sauce, a press guy, to go with DJ Reed, who they got from the Seahawks, a press guy. It's a different feel now with this Jets defense, and I like their upside moving forward. And Garrett Wilson, he was like my wide receiver, too, kind of behind Drake London, but I see um, the potential. I think the conversation was, was there a Justin Jefferson-type prospect in the receiver class? And I feel like that guy was Garrett Wilson, man. He's complete. He can play inside. He can play out. He's physical. He's tough. Doesn't look super big, but he plays big. And he's a guy coming in, he's going to command the receiving room. And he's going to allow now guys to move to roles that I feel like are comfortable to their play styles. I think Corey Davis is a wide receiver, too. They paid him like a wide receiver sure. one last year, didn't live up to it. Um, Elijah Moore's hype was immense coming to his rookie year, headlined by Odell Beckham. But I feel like he's more of a slot guy. So now you got your wide receiver one alongside Davis as your two and Moore as your three. The weaponry is there. And Jamie Rucker from Ohio State. He didn't get the targets at OSU because, I mean, the Buckeyes had the deepest receiving room in college football. But when you turn on the tape, he's a natural pass catcher, solid in-blocking tight end. Pair him with C.J. Uzama as well, who they got. That's a nice little weaponry for Zach Wilson, and it all comes back to Zach Wilson. Is he going to take that next step? I was never high on him either. I think his ceiling is probably Jeff Garcia. But we need to start seeing that Jeff Garcia ceiling sooner rather than later <laughs> because the talent is there, especially with Bruce Hall in the backfield, who I loved. Running back one for me personally, I know everybody fell in love with the guy, Kenneth Walker from Michigan State. But Hall reminds me a little bit of Le'Veon Bell, the patience, the balance, the ability to catch out the backfield, always moving forward, never does get tired. And he has that sneaky speed where you give him straight line, he's gone. The Jets in a draft may have saved their franchise from purgatory for the next five years. They took advantage of everything in front of them, picked all the guys that they needed to pick, and they walked away with true winners. I think now the bad thing about it is the clock's on Zach. He's got to produce in the next two years because if he doesn't and everybody sees the roster overall has evolved, he's going to be getting that Tua treatment where it's like we've got the roster, we need the quarterback. So his time is ticking indeed. Um, And one more team I want to touch base on. They had a killer draft. Kansas City Chiefs, man, like they traded Tyreek Hill for all of those picks for Miami. A lot of people were wondering, 
What are they going to do with the picks? Are they going to take the plunge and take a receiver in the first round? They actually didn't. They took Trent McDuffie, 21 overall, George Karloftis at the back end of the first round, and then they took Sky Moore. Let's talk about those three picks in totality with McDuffie. He's a guy who stock rolls because a lot of people marveled at his athleticism in comparison to Kyle Gordon. He's got flexibility, can play inside and out. They're remaking that secondary. We talked about it by them drafting Joshua Williams in the fourth round. How quickly do you think McDuffie can assimilate within their secondary and be an impact player year one? Yeah, I mean, they're going to have – if they move to, like, a zone scheme, man, they kill the draft because Joshua Williams can play in a zone scheme. Trent McDuffie, I believe, was the highest-graded zone corner in college football. The potential's there. And that Washington team, man, he comes from that Jimmy Lake – um, I, I would just say lineage almost where all those Washington guys are dogs at the, at the DB spot. And so he was, he's been the best DB in the PAC 12 for probably two years now. And then you look at George uh, Karloftis out of Purdue, uh, the ceilings there for him, man. I mean, just in terms of getting to the passer, he's got it. And a lot of people were comparing him to the Bosa brothers coming out of college as well. And you've got him at 30. And if he lives up to half of what either of the Bosa brothers brought, you nailed that pick. And then Sky Moore for me was such an interesting prospect. You know, he's a, he's a little bit undersized, really 5'10, like 190 ish. But in terms of separation, he was like, I believe, 90 something percentile in terms of separation. He His route running, footwork, and just shiftiness in the open field is going to make him a great addition to that team. The one question I have is, do they have outside of Juju? Do they have that guy who could be the outside big guy in that offense? Because Miko, Miko, and Sky Moore are very similar type prospects, in my opinion. So, are you going to have enough versatility in your scheme to replace a Tyreek Hill? And I don't know if they do, but I do think Sky Moore is one hell of a pick, man. And for to get him, I believe it was like late second round. They hit on the head, and the, even Brian Cook was their other second round pick as well. I thought he, in my opinion, is a very underrated prospect, got overlooked a bit by Kobe Bryant and Sauce. But in terms of the safety spot to replace Tyran Matthew, Brian Cook has a lot of potential as well. And then Leo Chanel from Wisconsin, too, was one of the top linebackers in the draft. And I'm excited to see what this Kansas City class turns out to be. Yeah, KC, they killed the draft last season, um, taking high-value offensive linemen later on and worked out for him. And then this year, we're really at a defensive focus um, McDuffie, Williams, I agree. They're a zone element guys. So if Spags defense next season is going to have more of a zone element type coverage, that'll help a lot. Now you have the personnel to get that done. Sky Moore does feel like, in my opinion, a Miko Hardman pusher in terms of he's going to challenge Miko Hardman for, for snaps, for playing time, and he might push him out because Moore is just a more complete receiver. A lot of guys coming out looked at Sky as the next Golden Tate. Um, my PFF co-workers, they really loved them, valued them super high, like end of the first round, early second. So for the Chiefs to get Sky at that kind of round, second round, 54th overall was huge. I think he could come in and play alongside Juju Smith-Schuster and Valdez Scantling very well. And so now Kansas City's receiving room is deep. It didn't used to be deep in the past. It used to just be Reek and Kelsey. That's about it. Now you have Juju, when healthy, is a solid slot. Sky Moore's upside through the roof. Valdez Scanlon's a nice vertical threat. Still got Miko and still got Travis Kelsey. But I thought the last two picks that they made, and really the four rounds, uh, Leo Chanel and Brian Cook. So Brian Cook, 
is a physical presence. I know they got Justin Reed to be free. He's kind of going to be Tyron. I think Cook is eventually going to replace Juan Thornhill, and he'll be a valuable replacement for Thornhill because he'll bring that strong safety presence as well as has the versatility to be solid in coverage. And then Leo Chanel was a do-it-all linebacker in Wisconsin. He was great pressuring the quarterback, great in run defense. And they hit home last year with Nick Bolton as a run-stopping linebacker. I think they're going to hit home again with Leo Chanel. And so now Kansas City's defense, which has been the deterrence at times of being able to build this team into a dynasty, you have a young defense now with a lot of rising young talents that if they develop could coincide with the max contract quarterback you got under center and Patrick Mahomes, they had a top five draft and coming into it. I think a lot of people underestimated it because the feeling is you lose Tyreek Hill. doesn't matter what type of draft you have. You can never accumulate enough picks or prospects to match what he did. But if all of these guys in the next three years can be a part of a Kansas city renaissance towards creating a more formidable dynasty, then it was all worth it for sure. Um, three worst drafts we kind of talked about New England. So let's move on. Dallas is another one I thought struggled. They took Tyler Smith from Tulsa, who a lot of people liked, just didn't like as a first round pick. They want him to be the right tackle. He played left at Tulsa. They want to be the right. He's very raw. So that's something to worry about there. Were you shocked where he was selected? And Dallas has a reputation. Didn't think of it this way. They don't develop offensive linemen very well either. Connor Williams came to Texas, came from UT and arrived within Dallas as who he was. And he left Dallas as who he was. Kind of a guy you could take advantage of in the interior. Will they take the requisite steps to develop Tyler Smith or will it be more of the same where it's like Dallas gets this lineman? But if he isn't a surefire prospect coming out of college to the pros, it's going to be tough sledding moving forward. Yeah, you know, I feel like, it, it, again, it was just a reach. I mean, Tyler Smith could absolutely develop, but the problem is, you know, one of the most penalized O-linemen in the draft, and that's been a problem for Dallas the past few years anyway. So he's raw. We'll see what happens with him. Also, you know, for me, it, the Cowboys' biggest thing is they're in contention mode. I don't know how many of these picks are going to help them win now. I don't, is Tyler Smith going to be a starter this year? Possibly, but also possibly not. Sam Williams, I do think if him being not the go-to pass rusher was a solid pick in round two, you just got to put him across from Micah, say, listen, we just need like eight sacks from you. Just just be solid. Don't You don't have to be a star. And this past year, he did pretty good this year in terms of getting to the quarterback for Ole Miss, but another hit or miss. Uh, their best pick, in my opinion, was Jalen Tolbert out of South Alabama. I really do like him. I think in the group of five level down at down in Mobile, he put on an absolute show. He is a extremely nice replacement for, for Amari Cooper. And just in terms of being in that offense, being reliable, not dropping many balls, and also being a really good route runner. So for me, that was their best pick. I didn't think – I don't know if Jake Ferguson really addresses their need at tight end really and truly i'm not sure how high i am on him he's more of a i was uh, he's probably a bigger blocker than he is pass catcher i don't think they're going to use him similar to how wisconsin is so we'll see what that is um matt from north dakota really good pass blocker a real long six seven plus type guy with the extreme arm length but i don't think he's a day one starter out of north dakota i think he's going to take some time to develop and then you look at the back end of the draft i mean Damone Clark could end up being the steal of the draft in the fifth round, but he just had spinal fusion surgery. Don't probably not going to be ready. 
anytime soon for them. But when he's healthy, man, Clark is a stud, man, and it's just a sideline to sideline, I guess, p- patrol person, man, where he can play at a really, really high level. I mean, was one of I believe was was a first team SEC selection this year. Has a lot of potential, but the spinal fusion surgery, man, it was a big concern. So I think they took a flyer, which is fine in the fifth round. But when I look at this draft class, I don't see any game changers day one. I see a lot of guys who can develop into really good draft picks, but there's no game changers from day one, in my opinion. And I think that's where they got docked the most in terms of overall grade. Yeah, it's never a good sign where you have an opportunity to pick in the first six rounds, then you have a seventh round pick. And then I walk away looking from your class and I'm like, your best selections might've been in the third or fourth round. Jalen Tolbert's going to come in and in my opinion, replace Michael Gallup, who's out with the Achilles injuries recovering from that. So he's Michael Gallup-esque. Like he's a guy that can take the top off the defense, but he's tough and physical enough to move the chains in a possession receiving role. And he's got great yak ability as well. So that adds um, a diversity element to the receiving room because we know they're going to lean on C.D. Lamb heavily to be wide receiver one. Tolbert can be your two. You got James Larson in the slot. Jake Ferguson is kind of a Dallas tight end. He's a guy that can block, can catch a little bit, more of a depth of rotational piece. Not really somebody you can lean on to be T1. I don't think they're expecting him to do that. But I can see this, though. Dalton Schultz's franchise tag. Eventually, if they want to move on from him, maybe Ferguson gets a promotion. That only happens if he balls out his rookie season. But Sam Williams is a rotational pass rusher in the second round. That's fine. But Troy Anderson was right there. And you need a linebacking help because it looks like Micah Parsons, for the time being, moving forward, he'll probably be a predominant pass rusher. Vander Esch hasn't worked out. He can't stay healthy. Jalen Smith's no longer on the team. I know they took Jabril Cox from LSU a year prior. He hasn't really stuck, so to speak. So you could have had Anderson there to play that off-ball role over a Sam Williams because we're talking about now they're in win-now mode. So the prospects that you do pick got to come in and make impact plays. And Damone Clark, I like him too. The problem is spinal fusion surgery. Fifth round selection, you can make that risk, but it's an impact player who he is that you may never get full throttle for the next couple of years. And they've kind of had this song and dance before with Jalen Smith when he came out of Notre Dame. Highly tired prospect had the spinal injury. He was able to recover from it and play in the league, but we can make a case that he never lived up to his hype because of the injury he suffered in college. So Dallas, man, they blew a huge opportunity to cash in with their picks and get impact players. Tyler Smith is more of a project. Um, The tackle from North Dakota is more of a project. A lot of project guys that they took and only about two guys that I can walk away from and be like, they're plug and play. And they were your mid round selections. So not a great draft, so to speak, But I don't think it tops the Niners draft, which was not that good to me as well. They're one of my franchises that didn't have a great draft. And I really want to talk about this running back pick. They took Tyler Davis Price from LSU. This is the second year in a row, Blue. They take a running back in the draft. And guys walk away from it like he's not a scheme fit for how they run the football. Price is a downhill runner. He's not really east to west. Neither was Trey Sermon last year. I've seen this song and dance before with Shanahan where he takes these offensive players and then early on in their career, they don't work out. And he talks about how they got to be better. And my response to that is why not pick a guy that's a seamless scheme fit? How did you feel about TDP getting selected by the Niners and can it work at all for both parties? 
Uh, I'm going to agree with that. I don't love it. I mean, he is not a – he's like an – He's just, I don't want to say boring, but like that's pretty much what he is. He's going to get you, what, two, three yards per carry. Never really been like the home run hitter. Couldn't really establish himself at LSU. And it's like, I don't know, you you lost Raheem Mostert. That, that's not that's not Tyron Davis Price, and like in the slightest. Not speed-wise, not explosiveness. You just got a, you got a workhorse. And for me, the question is, is – what do you, what is the what's the goal to get him? And so I thought the the value possibly is there with the third round pick, but I just don't think he fits what the Niners are going to want to do in terms of an offensive scheme. I, I don't think he's a starting running back, really and truly. I mean, you probably can use him in goal line or something like that, but that's about it. I think Drake Jackson was a solid pick at edge, but the problem with him is I think he's just a pass rusher. I don't think he's a guy you can have in every down at the defensive end position. Danny Gray can't catch a ball to save his life. I mean, when he does, he's electric, but he has a lot of drop problems. It, not 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 a great pick there. Then you get a bunch of project guys in the later four, fifth, and sixth rounds. I mean, it's the same thing where you might have one guy who's starting in 2022 in, in a major role, maybe two guys that have any role at all going into the season. I just personally don't see any impact guys for the 49ers. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised in three years if we're looking back and saying they didn't get a single starter from this draft class. And when you're looking at a 49ers team that they're in win now mode too, they've been in win now mode. I mean, you with, with Jimmy G, you're at least going to the divisional round. You have Trey Lance that possibly is finally going to lead your team, but the 49ers want to go win a Super Bowl, and I don't see any of their picks being one of the key reasons that they go win a Super Bowl. Yeah, I agree. Um, this draft class by the Niners was very underwhelming. Uh, Drake Jackson is raw. Um, he's one-dimensional. He's a pass rusher, tremendous athlete. But And it kind of comped him to Arden Key, who actually had a breakout year with the Niners, but Arden Key, for the most part, has been a bust. So you spend a second-round pick on – a athletic pass rusher that is underdeveloped, so to speak. Um, TDP was very confusing to me. Running back's the last thing the Niners need. They need weaponry. Um, obviously, the elephant in the room is Debo Samuels wants to be traded, still wants to be traded. So I think that's where the SMU receiver comes into the picture, Danny Gray. But if he can't catch, like you alluded to, how dynamic can he truly be? Are we talking return guy? Okay, but... I wouldn't take a return guy with my core four or five round picks like they did. And so I think Gray has Debo Samuel-esque upside. And I think if Debo moves on, I think he could go into that role. But it just comes back to the big thing. Rumor was Detroit and the Jets offered the Niners a first round pick for Debo. They should have took it. If Debo is telling you there is no amount of money you can pay me for me to stay, you have to move on. You can't look. You can't get your egos in a, in a, in about and make it be like, okay, I'm not going to follow what you say because you're on the contract. You're going to do what I say. They had a great chance trading with the Jets. They could have got Garrett Wilson. And now we're having a whole different conversation with Garrett Wilson in that offense with Trey Lance coming into form eventually in his rookie deal, upsides through the roof. But instead, they decided to keep Devo in the fold, go for these reaches, and they're kind of like the Cowboys. They're in win now mode. But I think unlike Dallas, the worst thing that happened to the Niners, in my opinion, because it kind of warped their psyche, they went to the championship game last year. I know the year prior they had the injury for those season, 
and that caused them to miss the playoffs. So I, I know coming in, the fan base thought we're fully healthy now. We can make a playoff push, but I don't think their fan base thought they were going to beat Dallas or beat Green Bay, but they did. And so their mindset needs to change. It needs to be all about impact players to help Lance's development and help our team win a championship. Instead, they went developmental and they missed out on golden opportunities to get better as a roster. I think they had one of the worst drafts overall. And unlike we could spin it for Dallas and we could spin it for New England where okay, there's probably two guys that we feel confident can make impact plays for them moving forward. I don't really see it with the Niners. I mean, if Drake Jackson doesn't pan out, maybe Buford, the left tackle from UTSA, he'll eventually take Trent Williams' spot. Maybe he could take that next step, but they missed out big time, and it's something that they're going to have to hope works out moving forward. Um, but this is the end of this segment of the episode podcast, Independent So, But before I go blue um, – gonna let you have the floor in terms of what did you like about the draft process what you didn't like who do you feel like has the best chance to succeed in their new destination and maybe a preview to next year's draft prospects moving forward from the hbcu fcs or fbf ranks who do you have on your radar that can take that next step and be the highly touted draft prospect for next year's class yeah man i mean i thought overall this looking at this draft man it was real strong in terms of wide receivers, corners, and offensive linemen, man. They, it was deep, especially at the offensive tackle spot. You look at Charles Cross, Evan Neal, even um, uh, um, I believe it's Akeem from um, uh, North uh, NC State. And then you look at the corners, Sauce and Roger McCreary going second round and even Derek Stingley going third to the Texans, that really, really strong DB class, all the way down to Marcus Jones in the third round. And also edge rusher too, man, from Kayvon to Hutchinson to Trayvon Walker to J- Jermaine Johnson, even to uh, Boy Moff in the second round from Minnesota. They, they was really strong, and I'm really excited to see how these guys develop. I wanted, I think the Giants, when you look at their first two picks with Kayvon and Evan Neal, I think th- those guys, man, I'm really excited to see how they turn out. I think the Giants had a really good first day. Also with the Saints, with Trevor Penning and Chris Olave, uh, I'm really excited to see how they turn out. Um, you know, looking ahead to next year, next year is going to be crazy, man. Especially in terms of quarterbacks, you look at some of the prospects that are coming out from a Bryce Young to a CJ Stroud, even to a Grayson McCall out of Coastal Carolina, potentially coming out of Cameron Ward, a transfer from Incarnate Ward going to Washington State, finally being on that Power Five level. Let's see what, let's see what he can bring. He could be a sleeper in this class. Also, Hendon. Hooker had a really big year at Tennessee. There's a lot of guys, and you have Spencer Rattler possibly changing up his career at uh, South Carolina, Keaton Slovis at Pitt. The quarterback class has a lot more potential going into 2023, and I think you're going to see that reflected in draft picks. The QB scouting next year is going to go crazy. After the top two guys go, it's just it's going to be the Wild West out there in terms of grabbing quarterbacks. Also, you know, for next year, I think there's some really good defensive ends coming out. I mean, you look at Will Anderson. That's going to be the most interesting prospect I'm looking forward to seeing people scout because, in my opinion, generational prospect and like a Derek Thomas-like prospect where you're looking at him being a instant game changer at that edge spot and with his size, speed, production, I'm excited. And at the FCS level, man, there's a lot of great prospects. North Dakota State was young this year, man. They got a lot of guys coming out next year following Christian Watson and Cordell Volson who got drafted this year. Lots of guys coming out. Justin Ford up at Montana, the Louisville transfer, looks like an absolute stud at the safety spot. Benny Saab, 
in Northern Iowa at the safety spot, Xavier Gibson at wide receiver down at Stephen F. Austin, Nugget at Jackson State at the corner spot. There's a lot of guys who I'm really, really excited to see where they land in the NFL draft. I think the FCS you look, you know, whether it's 20 or 24, depending on if you want to include some graduate transfers in there, was one of the biggest years the FCS has had since like 2008, especially a year with two first round draft picks also hasn't happened since 2008. If the momentum can keep going, the FCS and just HBCUs in general, man, could really build on this. You look at next year, if six, seven HBCU prospects get drafted, that's a huge step forward. And I think it's a possibility looking at some of the players that you have coming up. So I'm hoping that the senior bowl, the scouts, the teams continue to understand that there's real talent at the FCS level, man. But I'm excited for next year. I think next year's class Man, there's some real there's some real guys, and that's not even including the breakout guys that we don't even know yet that are going to have that Kenny Pickett type year that come out of nowhere. So I'm really really excited for 2023. Yeah, 2023 next season that's going to be the draft of the quarterback, and I think that's going to be a draft overall where a ton of impact players can go early and change the fortunes of a franchise immediately. I don't even think this is hyperbole. Um, as for the draft that just happened, like you said, deep at O-line, deep in the secondary, deep really in the trenches, and that's really where football is won or lost. Can you protect the quarterback? Can you get to the quarterback? Can you open up running lanes? Can you stop the run? And really for those FCS products, we had over 20 FCS talents get drafted this draft is huge to set a foundation moving forward for the non-FBS schools that kind of have players get into that draft circuit and really go early. Um, and we could talk about North Dakota State building their foundation there. Northern Iowa got Trevor Penning to get through the door. Um, North Dakota, Stephen F. Austin, those, for, those organizations, to say the least. And then on the HBCU realm, the SWAC, HBCU talents, you see four, four guys got in. And South Carolina State, they're going to be even better Next year is what I'm hearing. So they can have some more guys from their football program get a look. And so I think everything is going in the right direction. It's just really going to come down to, especially in the SWAC, you're going to have to play elite talent to get recognized. I mean, that's the main reason why Kobe Durant went fourth round. I mean, he played against Clemson, balled out two picks, and that gave the Rams all they needed to know in terms of being like, let's have this guy in our building to build a foundation for our secondary. So, the swag, I think, is stepping up overall. Grambling's got a tough schedule. Alabama A&M's going to have a tough one as well. Um, I know Alcorn's playing some elite competition within their own building to start the year. So I think being able to play against elite comp, perform well, have guys perform well, will open the door for individuals to get drafted. Um, also, quick shout-out to the Rams. Didn't get to them as well. They had a very good draft, and this is a team that's been notorious in terms of saying first-round picks don't matter, we're all championship mode, but they got a lot of quality value really in those mid-rounds, starting with um, Burris from Wisconsin. You get Kobe Durant. Kyron Williams fits their system perfectly. He's a rotational back and can come in and do a little bit of everything. And then in the seventh round, to get a first-team All-American from Montana State is phenomenal. They were able to make that happen, and he can be an edge guy moving forward to provide depth for the squad. I mean, I completely agree. I like Daniel Hardy. I really do. I mean, I, I had him on the show, man. The kid is, is an absolute monster. Came in from Washington. I think, you know, I think the COVID year really hurt him. I think if he had two years to really show what he could do because the big sky didn't play football due to the COVID year, I think that those two years, he, he could have found himself at the top five rounds, to be honest. Could have indeed. But now 
a guy that they could potentially have replaced that opening on the edge now that Von Miller is no longer with the squad. But always great to talk football with my guy, Blue. An interesting in-depth analysis of the draft recap. We both, as avid football fans, can't wait to see how all these guys pan out at the professional level. Um, With that, it's great to have you guys listen to episode 51. I'll be back next week for episode 52. This is Kimbo Romani coming at you somewhat live. It's going to be not live anymore. You guys listen. This is a dope listen. Stay tuned. I'll see you guys later.